Hello, my name is Mike Bangs, and I'm the Vice President of Real Estate Facilities at Oracle Corporation, and I'm also the current Cornette Northern California President. I'm pleased to introduce our newest member benefit, podcasts. The goal is to expand the knowledge offered by providing members with relevant content using different delivery methods. This is the first of many that are planned during the course of the upcoming year. Recently, we celebrated our 19th annual Cornette Northern California Corporate Real Estate Executive of the Year Awards with a spectacular gala at the famed St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco. I'm delighted to introduce to you the host of our podcast series, Melissa Pacey, Associate Principal with HGA Architects and Engineers. Melissa is on our Leadership Council. She's the co-chair of our Young Leaders Group and also serves on the Communications Committee. The chapter has discussed using podcasts in the past, but thanks to Melissa for stepping up to spearhead the program. Today, we will feature a conversation between our two distinguished honorees, Jim Morganson and Steve Hargis. Thanks so much for the introduction, Mike. I'm really excited to be here today, as well as having the honor to uh, interview our two CRE honorees this year. Melissa, this... Um podcast was recorded November 30th at the LinkedIn studios in Sunnyvale. And it was fun to listen to it. And I want to make sure people understand how valuable this podcast is really going to be to their careers. What do you think as a young leader? How has this impacted you? I think that the great part about this was that it was a little bit informal about the honorees life and career. And so it'll give any young leader or professional starting their career almost a guide of kind of what to do and what to not do as they enter, you know, the beginning stages of their career. I agree. It felt very genuine. And the tricks and the, the musings of senior leaders was really special. And I found myself knowing both men for a long time. I learned a lot about them that I, I didn't know before. And the richness of the podcast, I think, will reflect who those people really are. So I hope that you take time to listen to this podcast and take it for the value it is for your career. One thing I would want to add is that I think anyone starting their career, no matter how bright they are, one thing they lack is experience. And I think both of these gentlemen have a really rich experience that they shared with us today, which is something that they can kind of impart to that earlier generation and help them kind of with those stepping stones along the way. It's like an MCR in an hour. Exactly. I'm really excited to roll out this program, so Melissa, take it away. Joining us today are Jim Morganson, Vice President of Workplace at LinkedIn, and Steve Hargis, Global Consulting Leader at Woods Bagot. Today they'll be sharing their thoughts on leadership and some of the trends impacting corporate real estate today. Jim, we'll start with you. What do you think are the most important leadership qualities necessary for corporate real estate professionals today? Well, thank you for having me. So I guess probably the first thing is the ability to listen and to process information and to actually be able to feed that back in a coherent fashion. Um, I think we see with a lot of people who always make up their mind and they know what they want in advance, but they don't actually look at anyone else's view about it. And so I think one of the most important things I've found with my staff and my team and myself, if I can actually get myself to do it, is to really be, really to listen and to, and to understand what somebody is saying and go look for those diverse kind of point of view. Yeah, and Melissa, I might add to that, because I've been in profession so long, I've, I've 
sort of, um, I've learned how to be flexible. You know, this profession has changed so much in the past 20 years or so. And the ability to sort of shift levels from, you know, a very high level strategic level to a much more sort of tactical perspective, you know, happens on an hourly basis, you know, with, with both of our jobs. And I think it's really important that we're able to sort of switch those hats and change our perspectives to match the situations that we're in, whether we're dealing with the C-suite or whether we're dealing with, um, you know, service folks who, who are working with us or extended team members. So I think that's a really important one. To, to, to pile on to Jim's also, um, listening is extremely important and, and also delegating and giving those people that you're listening to the power to actually do something with their voice. So I totally agree. Flexibility is something that, at least in my career, I've found that if you, you have to be flexible. I can't tell you how many projects that I have started and not done right, <laughs> over my career. And, and I'm talking about you know, major things where companies have made huge investments and killed it at the last minute. It happens all the time. So you can't get too emotionally uh, involved or in sense emotionally invested into it. And you just got to remain flexible about, okay, what are we trying to do? What do we need to do? What's the best ways to do it? Yeah, and part of that, I think, is, um, is sort of finding the value and finding the happiness and delight in a number of different things. So, you know, you think about the ups and downs that Bay Area's had. And, you know, sometimes we're building wonderful campuses and, and, and you know, charting new territories around design and how it, you know, impacts people's work. And other times we're actually getting rid of stuff and we're, we're cleaning house and we're, you know, locking things down. And, um, you know, there's value in all of those things and it's really easy, you know, to, to lose that perspective. But I, but I, I really feel like in this profession, it's important to be able to find, you know, a place of happiness in, in all of those different situations. I call that compassion sometimes. So one of the things that, that I see very often is we do tear everything down, right? You, we, we rebuild it constantly. We constantly are making changes. We change for nothing more than sometimes just to make change. And sometimes we forget about um, kind of the original intent and, and we don't necessarily have the right compassion for who was ever doing or what company was doing, whatever it was before. And I see very often where we never celebrate it. Um, in my career, I've had one project where I actually got to celebrate what was done before in a space. And it actually turned out to be one of the coolest projects that we ever done. You know, ultimately, the, the, the designers of the space, um, you know, we, we did a lot to it, but the original designers we were pretty compassionate about their design and them as individuals and what they had put into it, right? And we wanted to make sure that we celebrated that. Um, so you, you don't see that very often in in, uh, in our industry. Everything is new, right? It is, yeah. and it's it's new for the expediency of it's got to get done. Let's let's do it immediately. Um, so you just end up you, you just don't have the time to invest into it, which is a shame. Compassion also goes to to I think to our teams. Sometimes I, and I'm the worst offender of this, as is, is probably anybody, but 
you know, you expect a lot out of your teams, and so you work them really hard and you drive them really hard. Now we're driven because we've got, you know, time constraints or money constraints, or or in the case of LinkedIn, you know, we're always out of space, so we're constantly trying to get enough space online fast enough to keep ahead of the curve. And one of the things that that sometimes we just don't really do well is we don't really be very compassionate to the teams that are working on doing these projects. Um, you know, we just finished a, a huge project. We moved 4,000 people into a new campus. Um, the team that was doing that literally went from doing that, from you know, getting that done to another project the next day, right, with literally no break. It's just like, boom, go, do. And then, you know, somebody will say, well, you know, I want to take a week's vacation. And it's like, really? There's <laughs> <laughs> no compassion. You miss the opportunity. <laughs> And Jim, you know, I think it's especially challenging, you know, as we look at our teams and in the world of outsourcing, which, you know, is, is really the history of the Bay Area, right? We all deliver with extended teams. It's one thing to control the, the sort of um, training and, and, and mentorship in your own organization, but when you're actually dealing with multiple organizations that you have less control over, um, it's not quite as sure of a, a thing when you're dealing with an extended team. Yeah, I think that I think that's absolutely true, and it it is a challenge. Um, what what I've found over the years is, for the most part, we probably outsource three to four jobs for every single job we have. Right? I don't know if that ratio holds true, but it, it it seems like that's the kind of ratios we do. So when you start thinking about the the teams and the personalities and the just the, the general mindset and how people have been trained and what they're thinking about, what their objectives are, um, that becomes very hard because sometimes you're on completely different kinds of pages of things. So one of the things that, that we've attempted to do, at least at LinkedIn, and, and I think my, my operations team is probably the best at this, is they've tried to embrace that in a way that's a really, really positive way. We really try to bring LinkedIn values to those teams, and we want those teams to profess LinkedIn values because they are the ones that are walking around our spaces with LinkedIn employees and everything else. And, and if we don't feel like they're part of our team and we don't embrace them as part of our team, then they're just somebody else out there, right? And so they don't get treated very well. They don't, they don't, uh, um, they're not really enamored. They don't really want to work here, right? They're working here for a paycheck versus working for kind of the bigger reasons of why people work for companies. And so we try to do a lot to embrace people, but it's hard sometimes. And sometimes you have a lot of corporate policies that basically don't let you do that. Um, one of the ones that I used to face at a different company was, well, you can't, you can't invite any outsiders to all hands. Well, that's crazy, right? Because when you think about it, it's, it's the all hands is where they're getting information about what's going on with a the company. They don't get that information from any other source. So, you know, we have to figure out a way to go deliver that same information. They would feel much more a part of the company if we would allow them to come to all hands or we come to events or we do all these things that are separate. It just doesn't make any sense. So. Um, fortunately, at, at LinkedIn, we're, we're, we're much different the other way. It really is about embracing that culture if we can bring folks in. So, um, but it's hard. It definitely is hard. And a lot of times you have a whole cadre of people that are working on you know, one focus. Oh, I need to cut costs, cut costs, cut costs. And then you got a whole other group of people who are like, no, 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 I need more service, more service, more service. Right. And, and that's a clash. Um, so you got to find the right balance. Yeah, and I think it just it points back to the fact that there, you know, there's not one leadership stream. There are multiples, you know, that are that are sort of running, you know, 
side by side. And, and so when you think of, of folks climbing those ladders or taking on leadership positions, you know, within, within that sort of matrix structure, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a, it's a very kind of multifaceted thing that takes a lot of attention actually. And sometimes we're too busy designing and building spaces to actually do that. Steve, Jim talked a little bit about how he cultivates that culture within LinkedIn and his service providers. Coming at it from the other side of the fence, how do you do that with your team on all of the different projects that they're working on? Well, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to be in the design world, and design is a very passionate thing, and that's why I'm there and have been there for 36 years. And, and whether it's, you know, architecture or interiors or furniture or, you know, designing carpets or, or you know, or even designing strategies and things like that, if you think across the, the, our constituency of service providers, we're all sort of doing something we're, we all provide a, a piece of the puzzle that hopefully we're very passionate about. You know, design's one of those things that's easy to have passion around. And the people who work with me do that because they are in fact passionate. And we search out clients who care, and not all of them do, right? But I think a, a couple things, you know, specifically about the Bay Area. One is that for a long, long time, companies like LinkedIn have included, brought partners in-house and sort of included them as part of the family. And that's been really, really good for um, that culture of, of, of service provider. And also we've, as an industry, really come to appreciate what, what our profession has to offer a business and an organization. And that's been really exciting. And so it's built that passion around what we're doing. You know, we're, we're no longer just, you know, stacking bricks on top of each other to, to keep the rain out. We're actually doing something about people. And it's actually quite a, quite a passionate business that we're in, which is easy to have some, you know, build some culture around. Great. Well, that's, that's awesome. Thank you. So obviously, each of you are the mentor of many, many people within our industry. So I thought it would be interesting to find out from each of you who your most significant mentors are. Oh, wow, uh, interesting question. So for me, it would have to be, I think, probably the one person I've learned a lot of from and both style and how, how she thinks through is Betsy Nelson, who used to be the CFO at Macromedia. So I worked for her for about five years. Um, we sold the company to Adobe, so um, it was kind of in the in the midst of that sale at the at the end. But Betsy was an incredible mentor in the sense that that she would never micromanage you, um, but she would pull the best out of you. What she would do is is she would make you think about things in multiple different kinds of ways, and then. When you had whatever you wanted to do, whatever it was, or, you know, she'd make sure that you had the right conviction about what that was, right? And and she would basically go, well, all right, you got to go sell this to Rob Burgess, who was a CEO. So, you know, Rob was a tough guy to go deal with, and so it was like, how do you go sell it, right? And so, you know, what are you going to tell him, right? And so you'd give her the headlines of what you're going to tell, and then she'd go, fine, and she would go push you to Rob, and Rob was. Uh, mean is probably the best word about it, right? Is is you know, he had no time, 
right? He didn't have any patience for anything that I did, right? And, and it was, you know, it was like you spend a lot of money and, you know, you build space that I don't quite like and, you know, it's, it's all fine. But, you know, so everything was an argument and everything was a, was a, uh, um, a challenge, right? And so what I found with Betsy was is she literally taught me how to read him and how to read others, how to kind of listen to the signals and the signs and see the signals and the body language and the things and how to react around it, right? She was just an absolute master of it. Um, she was probably one of the brightest women that I've ever met in my entire life. She spoke like a dozen languages and she just, you know, she was just incredible. Um, she and spoke the language of compassion also. She did, she did. She actually cared about her staff. <laughs> yeah, she, did. she really did. She, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was truly quite an amazing experience for the, for the five years that I worked there. And uh, we did some great projects and we did some phenomenal kinds of stuff. And uh, especially in terms of kind of the real estate and facilities kind of world of, of the things we were doing. And we had a lot of fun doing it. And a lot of that was, I think, just Betsy and just making sure, right, she cared. And, and uh, uh, as it came to her staff, uh, not just me, but she, so she had all, she was a CFO, but she had all of the kind of infrastructure staff. So IT and HR and uh, she had legal for a while and, you know, she kind of had all these kind of functions that, that in addition to kind of real estate. And um, so she, you know, would always have us all together and we'd always be doing stuff, but she absolutely would fundamentally, we would celebrate when we had successes and we would have a discussion about when we didn't. Um, and, you know, she just pulled the best out of us, right? So she was probably my best mentor. And what about you, Steve? Yeah, I, I'm going to answer your question a little bit differently because I actually think, there, you know, there are two kind of mentors that I've had. Um, and the, in the first part of my career, as I was sort of forming myself and who I was and what I cared about, I had a number of mentors, and they were most often business leaders of the firms that I worked for. But it's interesting that they were all women. just want to make that connection with Betsy. I don't know if there's anything there, but, but it just so happened that um, there are three or four folks a lifetime away that made a real difference in sort of forming who I was. The second half of my career, which is sort of my Bay Area experience, my mentors um, are more my peers. They're, they're not necessarily folks higher on a ladder. They're, it's more of a lateral learning relationship with a peer where, you know, before you know it, you know, you're really learning new tricks, whether, whether it's, you know, somebody like, like Jim or, or whether it's somebody, you know, a young leader, you know, somebody who's just come into the profession who actually has a tremendous amount to mentor you on. And it's not as formal of a relationship, but if you're open to that um, sort of back and forth exchange, I think that's probably the most, um, the most valuable sort of mentorship that I've had in, 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 in the last decade or so. There is one person, and I mentioned them when I accepted my award earlier this month, Ann Altoff is, is a name that I mentioned, who was a really important mentor because she got me into Cornet. And so, you know, that's relevant. You know, there, there's always somebody who kind of gives you that push to put you out there. And uh, she actually happened to be uh, that person who sort of convinced me that, oh, I could become 
you know, a knowledge leader around workplace, you know, and 20 years later, I'm actually that, you know. And, and so um, I'll um, sort of tip my hat to uh, folks like that that sort of give those pushes to get folks involved in professional organizations because it matters a lot. Would you say that those mentors have kind of helped inspire you? If so, how? And if not, what does inspire you to be in this profession? So that's that's a good question as well. So yes, I think the certainly in my case the different different mentors and and like Steve was saying, I've had a lot of folks in my career that I've worked with that they may have worked for me, but we've kind of look at that work as kind of being partnerships. So uh, you guys met Michael Hirohara when he introduced me the other day, but Michael is my partner in terms of LinkedIn's work, right? What he does versus what I do are kind of sometimes very different kinds of things, right? And so, but I can't do what I do without him doing what he does. And so, so um, you know, we kind of challenge each other and work with each other, even though he technically works for me. I never really think about him in that kind of, that kind of basis. So um, I think what Steve said was actually really good. There are other mentors or other relationships that are kind of mentoring relationships that really matter. Uh, Michael, in, in one case, where, where he's significantly better than I am in terms of how he thinks about development for people. Um, and it is something that's opened my eyes a lot, um, both you know, through Cornet and, and other kind of ways of learning. But Michael always is thinking about for his staff. Um, and now my staff is like, um, what, you know, how can people be better? What do they need to be better? What are the things that they need to be doing? And how can we help them and help facilitate that as, as leaders uh, and managers? How do we help them do those kinds of things? So, but to go back to your, your question on, on inspiration and what does inspire us, um, you know, it, it, it's probably just happens to be the two of us here today. Steve's a design professional. I love design, right? And 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 it is the design that makes our space successful. The things we do, and it's the most noticeable, and and um, frankly, it's the most in the face of all of the things we do. And it, it's the physical manifestation of our work. And so, what it comes for me, at least when I think about it, is I get super inspired when people are really happy with the spaces we deliver. And it can be the simplest thing in the spaces we deliver. But I got to tell you, I get emails, I get, you know, people will text me, you know, you'll see stuff, and you go, I, there wasn't anything, but they're so happy about it. And that absolutely gives me energy, it gives my team energy. It's, it's a, a really an amazing outcome. Now, I'm lucky enough to have worked for companies that have allowed me to spend millions and millions of dollars on space, right, and, and really value space uh, and, and value the fact that it does help drive the culture, it does help drive productivity and engagement within the companies. And, and so, so my uh, uh, leaders, my, my bosses and, and the company leaders, they all kind of embrace that philosophy and they see it and they see it in action. So I'm very lucky that I've been able to, in my career, been able to do the kinds of projects and things that we've had that have been in, inspirational. Um, and, and again, deliver some really, really cool space. Um, you know, I don't know, I, you know, I, I think sometimes where, where guys get stuck into, you know, delivering cookie cutter kind of space exactly the same, you know, across and, and it's like, what a boring job, it's not very interesting, you know. So how did that person must get inspired in a different way than we do? But ultimately for me, it, it's always been 
delivering just really, really high quality, beautiful space, space that absolutely is engaging and inspirational to the people that work there. Um, and, and something I've talked a lot about is, is it's not my space, it's really their space because it's, you know, for the most part of all the spaces I deliver, I've worked very few in, in very few of them. Um, I'm always in some other building somewhere or, you know, across the world. But uh, so it really is more about about the teams that work there and trying to find that. You know, I have not a lot to add to that. I mean, it, it's great that um, it's great that our business is about people now. And it, it wasn't, you know, not too long yeah, ago. Yeah. It, it, it really has shifted. Everyone wants to make a difference. And, and I feel like in the last, you know, I don't know, five, 10 years, we've been defining our worth, you know, through the impact that we make on people as opposed to, you know, density or speed of, well, it's still speed. It's all, it will always be speed of delivery. Uh, but but e even so, um, we're delivering uh, for, for people to have jobs and to actually produce something. And, and so again, the most, the most inspiring thing for me is that this profession has shifted to a people-focused and a culture-focused uh, profession, which is not what many of us went to school about, but it's been quite wonderful, quite inspirational to sort of be on that journey and to realize that you know, we're not anywhere near done. So earlier, Steve, you had mentioned um, compassion and being happy with what you do, but obviously not everything is happy in our worlds. So what would each of you say is the biggest challenge that you've come across in your career? Um, <laughs> actually, I said, yeah, I said it earlier, uh, uh, the biggest challenge uh, has always been the ability to, to remain flexible without any question about it. Um, and, and, and it is, you have to roll with the punches and you have to learn that you can't control every little detail on every little thing all the time. And you can get by with some of it, but there's a whole lot that you don't. So it's, you, you know, you have to be flexible so that when the winds of business or the winds of your company or whatever it is changes, you've got to react quickly and you've got to be able to, to keep your teams motivated and all the things you need to be able to, to ad, you know, address whatever that is. Um, and then part of that is you really do have to, as a leader, you have to stay motivated yourself about what that is. And those times in your career where you have uncertainty, where you don't know, right? That, that you don't know what's gonna happen to you or you don't know exactly what's gonna happen to your team. And then of course in the tech business, when one company is getting acquired by another company, you always have that uncertainty. Um, we're going through that right now. The hardest thing to do is to keep your team motivated about how to deal with that uncertainty. Because you can't answer the question. You can't say, you are gonna have a job tomorrow. I hope you do. Right, but I, you just don't have a real good answer to that. And as much as you know, the corporate guys will tell you, you got to tell them you have a job tomorrow because nothing's going to change. Well, gee, let's see. I worked for Adobe for eight days after Macromedia, um, <laughs> right? That lasted eight days, right? So that's how about yeah, that job changed, right? It it does change. That is what the very nature of it is. Um, you know, one of my other past companies, we we made the decision as a leadership team in the company to move the company to Virginia from California. Right, that impacted 700 people. 
right? 700 people lost their job as, as they decided that day. It, we did it for all the right reasons. It absolutely was the right thing to do for the company. We took care of all 700 people, I hope, right? I don't think anybody will ever stand up and said we did a bad job with that. But in the end, 700 people were impacted in a way that was different than the day before, right? Before they knew that that was gonna go on. And, and so that was a change. And we had to figure out a way to be flexible. We had to figure out a way to be positive. We had to figure out a way to make and get through that. Those are challenges that I think sometimes are just incredibly hard. Yeah, and I'll add, a perspective to that in that, you know, the really wonderful thing of, of being in the Bay Area for a long time is to have seen all the ups and downs and, and to actually realize that, that the sun comes out tomorrow, you know, and, 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 you know, the economy can do whatever it needs to and, you know, um, you know, it rains in the wintertime, you know, but summer still comes, you know, and, and um, it's been... Uh, uh, I think it's it's difficult for younger folks who haven't been through that to actually have a longer perspective that um, your job's not everything. It's that passion and, and it's that happiness that you have to keep. And, you know, that could come in a lot of different ways. Um, but some of it comes just through the relationships that you make, you know, and you keep through whatever, whatever happens. And... Um, so anyway, I think that that's a really difficult thing to, to learn that it's going to be okay, you know, and, and regardless of, of whether we're in an up or a down cycle, you will find a job. I mean, I went from Houston to New York to Mexico to here, you know, and I didn't plan any of those moves, but they all happened and they all ended up being really fabulous things for me and my career and my family. And so you just have to have that, that sort of faith. There's another thing that tags onto what Jim was saying is that, and I think the tech industry has helped us in understanding that failure is okay, right? And, and so um, it's a very hard thing to learn that it's actually okay to put yourself out there and fail. And hopefully you're working within a culture that, that accepts that. But I think um, more and more companies are, especially in this market because of the tech industry, it's a very difficult thing to learn and get comfortable with, but I think it's been something that's been really important to our profession. It's, it's really hard for the first time job guys, guys that we take right out of yeah. college. And then you've done something to their career, right? Whatever that is, right? It, it, it's very hard sometimes for, for them to process and to understand, and especially if they've never been through a downturn or ever got laid off. You know, I, uh, in fact, when we were at Macromedia, when we did a, and this was long before the Adobe acquisition, but we did a layoff of probably 10% of Macromedia staff in the Durant, and there was a dot-com pattern in 2001, I guess. We were laying people off who had never been laid off before, ever. First time out of college, have no idea when we laid them off, right, what to do. And literally, never had been in those kind of situations, right? Never had, had been in a situation where they had to prepare a resume to understand what, what it is that, you know, you gotta go sell yourself on to get your next job. How do you go get that next job, right? They were recruited, right? So they, weren't, they never actually went and got a job, right? So interesting times of things. Um, now, you know, I've been around the industry for a long time and I've been through a lot of jobs, right? And so you learn how to be able to do that. 
Um, and of course, we're constantly recruiting at LinkedIn. So, so you know, you, you learn to recruit better and better and better, and, and you learn to talk to people better, and you you learn from them and you teach them uh, kind of both ways. So, uh, but that to me is it's one of the weirdest places of I think in in our industry. Um, and and it's, it, it, it happens, you know, it's one thing to be young and for that to happen, but there are a lot of people who've been in their jobs 20 or 30 oh, yeah. years. Yes. And then when it happens, it's, it's a completely yes. different sort of situation. Yes. But um, How do you help people in those situations? And I mean, how did you deal with it yourselves? Oh, so, so that answer is actually really easy. And Cornet's actually a part of that answer, which is networking. Absolutely 100% networking. There is no better way to get a job than people that you know help you get that job. They literally introduce you. Of course, that's what LinkedIn's all about, so. <laughs> so sorry, for the, sorry for the plug. But uh, no, it absolutely is networking. Um, the more people you know, the more people that know that you are in need of a job or what you're looking for or what you're interested in, the more chances are you're gonna find what that is. And uh, one of the things that, that I tell both my staff and I tell anybody that I meet is, uh, sorry for this other plug, but fill out your LinkedIn profile. Make sure you do in fact get your interests into your LinkedIn profile because you would be surprised how many people will look at it and go, oh, you know what? That person looks like they've had a good business career, right? But I wonder, they might be willing to take a chance on them to do this job, which is not the same job, but a different kind of job because they, they sound like they're very passionate about that interest. and. By the way, those are the best jobs ever, if you think about it. If any of us have had those kinds of jobs, those are the best jobs ever. You have the most passion to be in that job and you want to do the thing because it's what your interest is. It's how you want to change the world. And so if you can make that happen, that, that absolutely is the best. Yeah, and um, I have lost my job three times. And they've all been really wonderful experiences, <laughs> not because the anything wrong with the jobs, but just for one thing, um, getting time off in this industry is tough. And sometimes forced time off is the best if you're prepared for it, right? Because it does let, let you have the time to sort of settle back and think about things and potentially chart new courses. This last, well, most recently, the most recent episode, I got a coach and that coach helped me with my LinkedIn profile and my social media presence, which, you know, isn't what it needs to be, but, but um, is better than it was. And um, so sometimes some professional help, you know, actually will, will get you to position yourself a bit, a bit differently. But, you know, at the end of the day, I agree with Jim, there's nothing to replace a fabulous network and a group of people who've seen you in action, who care about you, um, and who want you to succeed, so they're more likely to sort of connect you places. I think one really great thing about our industry that's happened probably just in the last you know, 10 or 15 years is that people are no longer in silos. They're moving everywhere, and, and you know, they're a service provider one day, they're end user the next day, they're something else the next day. You know? And, and this ability to sort of cross-pollinate and jump, you know, what used to be a fence, you know, sides of the fence, uh, all that's blurring. And so the, the options that any one of us have, you know, have doubled since, you know, 10 or 15 years ago when we, you know, if you were an end user, you were sort of an end user. And if you were a design guy, you were sort of that, you know, but um, 
those lines are blurring, which I think um, provides everyone with, with more options. Absolutely. I think that there's other factors that are also influencing our industry, and you guys have so much knowledge on that. I was wondering if you could share what you think are the more important factors influencing the corporate real estate community today. Well, I actually think Steve said it earlier, which is the, it's the focus on the user of the space, right? That probably is the one single thing that has probably changed, at least in my thinking in probably 20 years, 25 years. It really is about the people that are working there, right? About creating the right environments and, and giving them the, the things they need to do the job they need. And it's, by the way, it's not just in real estate. It, 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 HR people will tell you the exact same things in terms of, of talent and the kinds of things they're trying to develop in folks. And, and, and everybody's kind of at that same approach. They, they, they've actually over the learned, we've, you know, as companies, I think we've learned to value the talent that we're hiring and, and not think of it so much as a commodity. Right, and and I do think, you know, 20 years ago it was a commodity. It was like, eh, you know, you can hire as much as you want, and you can fire them whenever you want, and it's just, you know, just push them through and get it done with. Whereas today, you get much better output, and you get much better, just work product, and I think people are more engaged, and they're more satisfied with their work, and they're more creative about the work. And so I think we've seen an acceleration of that, which really is based upon the individual, and embracing the individual, and embracing the diversity of individuals. And the, even this, you know, you'll, you, you know, something that you probably have heard now over and over and over again in the last couple of years is, is around the importance of diversity in uh, in hiring and the importance of diversity in, in you know, kind of managing companies and, and especially tech companies are now getting very focused on having very diverse workforces. Well, they're doing that because it's bringing new ideas and different perspectives to the table. And it's absolutely required in today's you know, kind of climate, right? Is the, the world is getting to be homogenized in a way, right? Because of information and, and so what's happening in one part of the world may not be necessarily be happening in the other part of the world, but we need to understand what that is and we need to be able to embrace it. And so this whole idea of having more diverse workforce and more diverse opinions and actually soliciting and getting those opinions out from people is becoming much more important. And again, it goes back to, I think that one thing is changing how we as an industry are starting to think about stuff. We can go back and look at you know things like, yeah, do we use less space because we cram people in and we got more technology and you know all of those kinds of things. But I don't think that's moving the industry. I think what's really moving in the industry is, is really about embracing individuals and embracing the kind of the diversity and things we have. I would agree with that and, and sort of put a different perspective on it in, in, you know, in the context of what's happening in the world and economic situations and things like that. I think it's forced, it is continuing to force real estate professionals into a position that's more connected to community politics and locational politics. And, and um, we didn't used to do that so much. And you know, now we, we really do have to worry about, you know, a place like the Bay Area where you know, our employees might not be able to afford to live. You know, or your community may not have the quality of school that you want. Um, those things have become, you know, more and more important to us. You know, how much housing is there in North Bay Shore in Mountain View, you know, or anywhere else? That sort of connection with, with 
the political environment, I think, is is something that um, will continue to um, color the direction of the profession. The, uh, that is an amazingly super good point because when I think about how companies are thinking about their local community now, um, and and you know, it's, I'm sure it's different for every company, but it, but for the way we think about it, is we are we are part of the of the organism that's part of the community as a company, right? So it's super important to think of ourselves as a contributor to the community, not somebody that's constantly taking out of the community. By the way, our employees are the community, right? So if you start thinking about that, and from that perspective, they're the ones that are on the school boards, they're the ones that are on the local city councils and, and those kind of things. So you wanna embrace that, you wanna be part of that. You don't wanna be separate from that. And, and, and so you wanna start to think about ways that you can help the community in a, in a positive way. A lot of companies are very kind of um, siloed in a sense, right? And and I think that actually hurts them. I think that hurts their ability to hire good people. I think that hurts them in the long run. And these companies that have been much more embracive to to uh, um, to the community and try to actually do positive things in the community are far better off. Um, and and literally and to support employees, their employees to be doing things. Um, I, some of the bigger companies have been great at it. Um, some of the littler companies are even more phenomenal at it, right? Just in terms of what they allow their employees to do and what they they literally create the environments to let them go, and they pay and they you know they provide the 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 time, which is probably the most important thing for for people to get off and and help things. You know, I can I can now at LinkedIn we do we have these things called in days once a month. And they're really about trying to do things within the community, um, and you know, some of them are for uh, um, you know, what what can you do for a community service kinds of things? What can you do for you know that that that's you know, focused on schools and different kinds of aspects? And they're really quite wonderful because people actually basically creates the the time for people to go do stuff, and and then the company tries to organize a little bit around it so that that people actually have different things they can do depending on what their interests are and stuff. And I think stuff like that is just absolutely incredible. Seeing the actual facilities themselves be shaped by that community presence as well, have you kind of programmed that into your spaces? Uh, well, have I no, um, and, and us no in a sense, but in a, in a different sense. Um, that's more about kind of master planning, right? So, so today, office space is still office space, and you know because we're in a highly competitive industry, and and you know you 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 want to make sure whatever your product is is your product and not somebody else's product, or somebody else is taking your product, right? You you end up with fair level of security, and you end up with you know kind of a different thinking about you know how that is. So so. You don't, you know, for like in case of LinkedIn, our spaces aren't open, right? So, so they are secured spaces. You know, we bring a lot of visitors in and we're pretty open about stuff. But in the end, you know, you don't want some engineer writing out code for somebody to walk through and steal a code, right? Because it is highly competitive industry and people will in fact go do that. From, an, from a community point of view though, I think the one thing that is changing very much from uh, from kind of how we think about spaces is our campuses are becoming more open. This idea of, uh, and it goes back probably to IBM days and, and HP days where you had closed 
campuses that almost had walls and fences, and you know, some of them actually did, where you know, everybody in that campus works for that company or is a, a contractor or a vendor or somebody that has a reason to be there, but no one else is there. I think those days are starting to go away, and I think that there's much more um, kind of community brought into the spaces. And, and, and an example of that, which sounds very strange, but, but the fact is is that we've been very successful at having kind of urban campuses, which been, we have office spaces and buildings that are in urban environments, and it's kind of cool to have the, the urban environment around you because our folks like to go out to stores and meet people and bring people in. And so when you take that and you put it in a suburban environment um, and you start thinking about that, you end up with a much more open kind of campus, which I think ultimately goes back to that idea about diversity because as people are seeing different people and seeing different experiences and, and are having different experiences, um, they're getting, they're just getting more ideas. They're getting into thinking about things better, and and I think they're reacting to things better. So, um, so I do think that that you know one of those things is changing is in fact that campuses will become and, and groups of buildings and all that kind of stuff will be much more open, much more community oriented. Um, now, when I said we haven't designed things that way, we we still you know we don't have the kinds of needs, and we were. We have some projects that we're looking at that will be open kinds of projects. Now, by the way, cities also are embracing that. They don't want you to build closed campuses anymore. So, so you know, they're seeing and they're hearing, you know, gee, if we're going to grant you this right to build something, we want you to actually give something to the public that they can use. So, <laughs> Steve, what's your perspective on that? On that, or back to the original question? <laughs> that was a rabble. Oh, kind of. Because <laughs> you're seeing that with a bunch of different companies as well. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, I, I think that um, I think one contribution the Bay Area has made is is to help redefine development patterns. You know, and specifically for for suburban campuses. Um, I think we've we've uh, help to put structure on that that the rest of the world is following. Um, I mean, I'm working on a project now where we're dealing with bird flyways, you know, and, and bioswales and things like that. Well, that's not exactly this sort of vocabulary that I was using, you know, 15, 20 years ago. But yet, um, you know, it's, it's what we're talking about today, which I think is a, is a really wonderful thing. I did have one, one more point on the... Um, sort of transforming the future of corporate real estate. And it's really a plug for Cornet, you know, and in the past year or so, um, our chapter's efforts, and, and actually the global um, organization's efforts to sort of connect more with universities and have more impact on the way that um, students are trained and the curriculums that they go through, I think is a really, wonderful way that we are helping to give our experiences back to the educational system and make sure that folks are coming out of those systems ready, you know, to attack all the issues that we're, we're in the middle of, you know, and, and, and beyond. So I do think that that's a, a really positive note for the future of corporate real estate that we're, we're, we're going backwards into that educational system to help sort of build um, our replacements. So kind of along those same lines with kind of the new younger generations coming in, 
What advice would you give to those people just starting out their career? I would say, uh, you know, if I look at what's made a difference to my career, and I, I've actually um, been deeply involved in Cornet for 20 years, and I would have never known how important that was 20 years ago. But um, putting yourself out there and grabbing on to an organization like Cornet and really helping to mold what the profession is going to be about has really been the center point of my career. But it, it takes a lot of time, it takes focus, um, and it takes getting involved and staying involved. But, but feeling like you're sort of uh, not only building the future, but you're also leveling the playing field, you know? So the things that, that I've impacted at Cornet have helped people like Jim have a common language, you know? So it's brought end users and, and um, service providers together. So, you know, monthly programs and, and MCR courses and things like that. Um, so there's, there's tremendous value in throwing yourself into an organization like Cornet. So that's one thing that I would contribute to that. The other thing is um, go broad. You don't know where this profession's gonna be in five or 10 years. Um, I, I said earlier, you know, 20 years ago when I moved here, I had no idea that I would be doing the kinds of things that I am today because this, you know, my profession, the design profession is so different than it was. And so I think anybody in um, a position of sort of starting out just needs to have as broad a perspective as possible, take everything in because there is no telling what we're going to be dealing with. Uh, in this real estate profession, you know, over the next 10 years? Yeah. Um, so the first part, I, I, Steve is exactly correct. I call that know your craft. Um, and, you know, we tend to hire professionals, people that, are, that really do know their craft, um, but they don't necessarily have honed their craft. And I think uh, organizations like Cornet do a really good job of helping people hone their craft. Um, in the real estate world, uh, a lot of that craft has a lot to do with, um, I think, actually, financial skills and the ability to understand real estate in how the accountants understand real estate and how they manage and how they think through it. Um, for me in my career, that I've been very successful, I think, partly due to the fact that, that I try to understand that and I try to present to, to whatever I'm doing in terms of it, in terms of the financial terms and the things that we need. And so one of the things that, that I kind of insist on and for most of my staff is they need to understand the, the financial impacts of the decisions they made as those decisions that impact is made to the company we work for. So if it's a public company, understand what that's gonna to do to our income sheet, our balance sheet, and understand what, how that's gonna get accounted for and how it's gonna be thought about. And by the way, that will dictate many of the decisions you make on, do I make this investment or that investment or how do I do that or, you know, it will, will change that. So that's a really important part of kind of the craft that I see. The other part of that is the ability to sell. Um, you know, we all need to sell. We always are selling. We're selling everything all the time. Um, when you think about it, whatever idea you have, you want, you want to be able to sell that idea, that concept, or whatever that is. You want to convince others that that is, the, that is something important. And so 
yeah, I think it's important for people to kind of self-develop and develop those skills. Um, and so, I, you know, my advice to anybody young coming into the industry is spend time, invest in that time to de develop yourself, um, your own, you know, your, both your own craft skills, but your skills around your own personal development. Have a development plan. And by the way, share that plan with people. Don't, don't, you know, have your own little secret plan, but, you know, have it in whoever your mentor is or whoever your best friend is. Share it with them so that they can comment. And by the way, they might have a different perspective that might actually help you in doing something a little bit differently or thinking about it. So, um, but I don't, I can't underestimate that, that, that first part is know your craft is super important. Um, and the more you do, the better off you are. Um, you know, and then all the other stuff, you know, being flexible and all that stuff is all important, but, but it really is, you know, you, you gotta start off with something. So. I'm, I'm gonna say something, I hope it's not controversial, but you should go somewhere else and then come back. And, and I think one, one of the issues that we have in the Bay Area is it's so great to be here. You know, it is such a wonderful place to be. <laughs> And the weather's nice, and you know, once you get established, it's really quite wonderful. But um, people need to get out in the world, and I think that is so important to our our profession, especially um, that we sort of have a, a global perspective of this whole people culture thing, right? And so, hopefully, everybody in their career practices in more than one place. It's been one of the most important things to my career to have done that. Not only work in four places, have careers in four places um, in North America, but also to do projects around the world in 30 countries. That's, that is really foundational to where I think our profession is going. It's, it's a foundational skill. I totally agree. I, I'm Unfortunately for me, I've never really lived anywhere other than the Bay Area, a little bit in Southern California. It's not too late. So it's not too late. Yeah, well, and you <laughs> never know, land. you know, <laughs> getting acquired by an awfully large company. And, you know, so, um, uh, but, uh, you know, it is important to understand that other view and that other thing. I, one of the things that, that I think has been important that, that I do encourage people to, if they really want to go try something differently, go try it, go do it. Um, and, and, you know, find your passion. Sometimes what we do really isn't the passion, right? It's, you, you, sometimes you, you end up in a role or a position and you just end up there by hook and crook or whatever reasons, but it isn't necessarily what you want to do. And if you're clear that isn't what you want to do, then go do what you want to do. Life is way too short. Right, to, to, to go invest and spend time doing something that you don't love and don't have a passion for. Um, and, I, you know, I see, I see it happens with, with my team here at LinkedIn that people will say to me, you know, oh, you know gee, I'm thinking about this. In fact, I, I have a guy who his last day is tomorrow and he, he has resigned because he, he's, he's really uncertain over the Microsoft acquisition and he, he cannot live with that uncertainty. And we've tried everything that we can do reasonably to be around it. But he has a lot of good reasons of why he is, and I won't, I won't go into those. But, but in the end, what it really is, is he's not very passionate about what the role is he's playing today. And so we've explored different kinds of roles for him, but he can't see himself in those roles in this company. And so the right answer for him is, 
go to a different company, right? Mm -hmm. And I totally support that for him to be able to do, right? Now, some people go, well, that's crazy. You've trained him, he's gone through it. And it's like, no, but he, to, for the world to get the best out of him, he needs to go do something else. For LinkedIn to get the best out of him, I don't know whether I, whether we can do that or not. We're kind of at that end of the, you know, at least in, in, unless his headset changes about the kinds of things that, that, that he wants to do. So I've fully encouraged him to be very passionate about go do something that you want to do, right? And, and we've given him time to go think about it and have a way to go be able to do it, which I think as managers is the one thing that we can give to people is give them time to do things. But, so, um, but it's super important. You've got to have a different view. You've got to see the world from a different lens. You've got to have people who will tell you about the world from, from a different lens because we're all very narrow focused on everything we do. Um, and by the way, the busier you get and the more things you have to do, the narrower that focus goes because you don't have any time for any of that other stuff. So, so in order to be successful, you're just going to go down that path as, as far as you can to get everything done. But the more you can embrace and the more you can take in, the better off, the better decisions, the better you'll feel, the better the, you know, the more passionate you'll be about it. And, and uh, I don't know, I see it in everything. I see it in design. I, I, you know, it's one of the things that, that um, you know, I've, I've hammered on my teams for years and years and years is we're not my team. We are not the design experts. We hire the design experts. So let them be the experts in what we're doing for them, right? What they're doing for us, right? Let them do their best work. We got to pull it out of them sometimes. We got to suggest things, right, right? But don't dictate, do this versus that, right? If they really have a, they're very passionate about something, listen and try to embrace that and see if it, if it worked. Maybe it doesn't, and maybe you, you know, you, you'll change it. But, but try to get the best out of people. Try to listen to them. Try to understand that other perspective. Um, it's just so, I don't know, we just get, everything is better when we do that. Yeah, I agree. I, I think we're, we're stronger together, and that's one thing that this industry has embraced, I think, over, again, again over a couple of decades, I suppose. Um, yeah, it's made us stronger and it's, it's quite wonderful. And that push and pull comes from both directions, you know. Yeah, yes, you let designers do their thing, but their thing needs to actually be pulling the right things out of you. Because in, in the end, if it, it really is about this people and culture thing, and it's about, you know, integrating with the community, you know, there's, there's a lot there to work at, uh, work with. And, and um, so um, design needs to be closely connected to those things. I wanted to just add one thing to what you were saying before that thought um, around folks leaving, you know, when you need to leave, you need to leave. And, you know, one lesson that I have learned is burn no bridges. I actually have two clients right now that were my employees. They're the Jim Morgansons, you know, of the world. And they used to work for me. And that's wonderful, you know, that you sort of come full circle like that. You never know who is going to be sitting beside you, you know, at the next desk or across the table uh, at a meeting. And people, you know, go away. They come back with different skills. I mean, I think it's really important. It gets back to the flexibility thing. You know, we're all going to see each other lots of times during our careers and in lots of different situations. And, and uh, we just need to to be prepared for that. That is so true. Um, 
Don't burn bridges is really, really, really important. I, 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 or, yeah, or at least I, just a couple. Maybe yeah, just no, a couple. True, true. But <laughs> I, I don't know, think about it that way, but it, it, it is, I don't know, I look, at, I look at my team. I probably, I probably have 10 to 15 people on my team that have worked for me in other companies, right, that, that are working here at LinkedIn that, yeah, you know, they were good at what they were doing. Now, by the way, I didn't hire all those. So other people hired them, right? So, so some of them were just here or some of them were, were uh, people that were recruited you know, long after you know, I was here. I don't, you know, didn't necessarily influence those decisions. Um, and by the way, I have people that, that have worked directly for me who have worked for me three or four jobs ago, right? That, and, and people that we like to work around and, and you know, there's always that good thing. But burning the bridge is really important. Um, burning the bridges in the tech industry is even more important because you never know who's going to acquire you the next day. <laughs> right? So, so you know, you know, when you may find that you may be mortal enemies with somebody, they may own you the next day. So you know, the reality <laughs> is that you don't want to do that. No, I, I actually go back. It goes back to if you're good at what you what you do. If you if you have enough self confidence in kind of the things that that. You know your career, your thought, how you how you conduct yourself. People will learn, and people will learn. And if you or if you if you if you deliver on what you say, and you're always open and honest about what that is, people will learn that. And that that's the that's what follows you around in your career. If you have somebody that has lied to you, or has been bad, and just and hasn't performed well, or has been hard to deal with, and those kind of things, those are the last people that you're going to hire. And by the way, those are the first people that you're going to get rid of, right? So if you're in a position to be able to, so so that burning the bridge is sometimes really really important. And sometimes people are afraid of things. I was talking about the the gentleman that's leaving my staff. The good news is, is he came and talked to us about it, and I feel very good about what he's doing. Had he not come talk to us and had he just given us notice and wouldn't talk to anybody, that would have been burning a bridge. No one would have understood why and, and you know, it was, he would have been kind of leaving things in a way that wasn't necessarily a good way. You want to make sure that you close that off. You want to make sure that you create and keep the relationships because it's those relationships that are important. Thank you, Jim, and thank you, Steve. This has been a really informative session and I'm really excited for all of our listeners to be able to tune in. Please feel free to comment as well as we plan for the next podcast. We'd love to get your ideas.